Hi, I'm Justin Fiaconi, and this is Policy Talks. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Kirsten Van Houten. We discuss Canada's role in peace building, analyzing the past, present, and future, and specifically Canada's engagement in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Dr. Kirsten Van Houten is a postdoctoral fellow in human rights at the University of Winnipeg and an adjunct research professor at NIPSIA. She has worked as academic and practitioner at the Human Rights and Peacebuilding Nexus since completing her PhD in International Development Studies at the University of Ottawa. She has worked with Canadian political parties and non-governmental organizations to advocate for improved policy on peacebuilding. She is co-editing a forthcoming book with former Secretary General of Amnesty International, Alex Neve, exploring Canadian foreign policy at the Human Rights and Peacebuilding Nexus with contributions from superb academics and activists across the country. Her research interests include peacebuilding, civil society, human rights, state fragility, Canadian foreign policy, gender equality and disability. Regionally, her work has focused on Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. Thank you so much for being here with us, Dr. Van Houten, and welcome to the show. A brief reminder to our followers and listeners that all opinions discussed today are reflective of the individual person expressing them and do not reflect the views of the interviewer, iAffairs Canada, the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal, or the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Now let's dive into the show. Dr. Van Houten, we are so excited to have you. First of all, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Um, so to just to start off, um, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about your research and your field of study? Yeah. Um, so the doctoral research uh, examines the contribution of three um, local civil society organizations to peace building efforts in South Kivu in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, it presented a unique or original way of um, understanding the relationship that those organizations played in relation to external funders and to more localized peacebuilding actors and residents and community members of conflict-affected regions of South Kivu. And I've published work on that project in uh, the Journal of Civil Society and Peacebuilding. And I'll also uh, have a book chapter coming out in a German book uh, sometime in the next year, we hope. Um, it's been in progress for quite a while. Um, and since uh, I finished my PhD, I've spent some time working as a practitioner. I've held a number of partnership roles which have expanded my work with local peace builders and human rights defenders to places like Palestine and the Philippines, India, and uh, other countries in Southern Africa. Um, and uh, so I'm interested in expanding some of my work, particularly to look at the case of the Philippines 
And at the moment, my work has been focused on examining and understanding um, a Canadian policy called Voices at Risk, which seeks to help uh, support human rights defenders through Canadian embassies um, overseas. Uh, and I'm also working on that book project, which you mentioned with Alex Neve, which I'm very excited about. And I am also an editor on a forthcoming book on SDG 16, which is on peace, access to justice, and uh, inclusive governance. Um, so I have a lot going on. I'm also looking forward to uh, starting some new work on gender and disability in fragile and conflict-affected states in the fall. Oh, that sounds great. Sounds like you'll be you'll be really busy uh, in the next couple uh, couple years. Um, all right. So I guess uh, we'll just start with uh, into the questions. So for context, uh, I think it might be helpful. Uh, for our listener to get a sense of what exactly peace building is and what it entails. Um, could you talk a little bit about how peace building has evolved over time um, and what it mer emerged from and what it sort of means today? Yeah, so uh, the, the definition of peace building that I like to present to my students uh, comes from Jean-Paul Lederach in 1997 which defines peace building as a comprehensive concept that encompasses, generates, and sustains a full array of processes, approaches, and stages needed to transform conflict toward more sustainable, peaceful relationships. The concept of peace building first emerged as part of former UN Secretary General Boutros Boutros Ghali's 1992 Agenda for Peace, which identifies a four-part strategy for securing peace in the spirit of the UN Charter, uh, which also includes preventative diplomacy, peacemaking, and peacekeeping. In that document, peacebuilding is defined as including actions that may take the form of concrete cooperative projects which link two or more countries or communities in a mutually beneficial undertaking that cannot only contribute to economic and social development, but also enhance the confidence that is so fundamental to peace. It can include um, strategies that we know well, like disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration, the repatriation of refugees, advisory and training support for security personnel, monitoring elections, advancing efforts to protect human rights, reforming or strengthening governmental institutions, and promoting formal and informal processes of political participation. Uh, since 1992, this concept uh, has continued to evolve significantly in theory and practice. In his 2011 book um, on a genealogy of peace and conflict studies, Oliver Richmond identifies four distinct generations of peace and conflict theory, uh, which include conflict management, conflict resolution, liberal peace building, and state building, and post liberal peace building. Liberal peace building is the dominant model used by the international community, which emphasizes democratic governance and institutions and the establishment of free markets. Post-liberal peacebuilding emphasizes local ownership of peace processes, uh, the need for reconciliation, and creating socioeconomic foundations for positive peace, uh, which is a situation in which rights are restrictive and justice is available to all members of the population. 
The UN's approach to peace operations has evolved significantly since 1992. In 2015, a report produced by the High Level International Panel on Peace Operations, or the HIPPO, <laughs> reflected that peace operations do not end with a ceasefire, peace agreement, or elections, rather that maintaining and strengthening political momentum, addressing underlying causes of the conflict, deepening and broadening peace processes through inclusion and advancing reconciliation and healing are also central to sustaining peace. They emphasize the need for national ownership over this process. Within the local turn, which is the term used to describe post-liberal peace building, there's recently been renewed emphasis on the integration of marginalized voices into peace processes, including women who have not been well captured by the post-liberal literature and in many cases, local peace building itself, as well as persons with disabilities and members of the LGBTQ2S plus community into locally led peace efforts. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Dating back to the 1956 uh, Suez Canal crisis, then Minister of Foreign Affairs Lester B. Pearson fashioned an image of Canada throughout the international community as a multilateral peacekeeping nation. This became part of Canada's global image as many nations would look to Canada to provide peacekeeping troops and spearhead peacekeeping missions. Looking back on the past 50 years, what impact would you say Canada has had on the evolution of peacekeeping? And what lessons do you think that Canada could learn from its past involvement in, peacekeep in peacekeeping and peacebuilding initiatives? Um, so Canada has long basked in its reputation of being a peacekeeping state. Um, however, in the academic literature and among civil society organizations, this reputation is largely regarded as a myth. Um, although we have had a few market successes, uh, including Canada's diplomacy on the Suez Canal crisis, uh, and significant troop contributions to Bosnia and Cyprus in the 1990s, Canada also contributed troops to, to the Somali peacekeeping efforts in the same period, but that one was marked by a scandal. Since the 1990s, there has been a precipitous decline in personnel contributions to peacekeeping efforts, despite rhetoric the current government that Canada is back. Um, and easy, low-hanging fruit suggestion for what we can learn from our immediate past in relation to uh, peacekeeping, peace operations, and peace building is uh, that we should endeavor to meet our troop commitments, which Walter Dorn um, estimates is 860 active personnel, whereas current in peacekeeping missions around the world, whereas we currently only have 58, um, which is well below our target. Um, I think that our relative failure to contribute to peace operations internationally contributed to our failure to obtain a seat uh, on the UN Security Council. Um, and so that's a first minimum step. I think that Canada also, you know, would benefit from engaging with the emerging sort of peace building literature and practice uh, and 
renewing its approach to working with people through the women's peace and security agenda, um, which it does fairly well, um, but also targets more localized populations. We do do that um, in some projects, although um, at least one of them has recently come to a close. Um, and so that local engagement responds to that local turn in peace building and it contributes to national ownership. Um, and it shows that we're playing on an equal playing field um, in countries outside of North America and Europe. Um, yeah. That's great. Yeah, it sounds like we, are, we, have, we still have a lot of work to do in, in our peacekeeping efforts. Um, so I know that you have done a significant amount of work on the Democratic Republic of the Congo uh, and more specifically the Kivu conflict. Um, could you talk a little bit about the conflict and sort of the impact that MONUSCO, which is the United Nations Organization Stabilization Mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, a bit long, um, but what the impact um, that MONUSCO um, has had on the conflict and, and sort of how that's developed? Yeah, and um, so I'm going to start with a little informal blurb on uh, on the history of the conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and MINUSCO, and then I've prepared sort of a, a briefing on the current situation, drawing on UN documents and um, Human Rights Watch reports and other sources. Um, so the conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo has been ongoing since 1996. It had two major international phases, one that started in 1996 and ended sort of in 1998, and another one that started in 1998 and officially ended in 2003. It was followed up by national democratic elections in 2006. Um, and then there have been subsequent elections in 2011 and 2019. There are elections scheduled for this year as well. Um, so throughout that process, there have been ebbs and flows in the violence in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, which mostly um, remains outside of the control of the state. Um, and I'll start my comments by saying that MONUSCO has been heavily criticized um, for its actions in the Democratic Republic of the Congo because of its well-documented failure to protect civilians and also because of um, its failure to actually stop the fighting and maintain ongoing peace, um, although there's some obvious operational challenges in that regard because the Congolese government has never maintained its authority um, in the region. And so um, MONUSCO has almost an impossible task. Um, so now I'm gonna launch into the little brief that I prepared about the current situation. There have been, <clears throat> relative stability and calm um, in the DRC after the, sorry, I guess it was a late 2018 election um, rather than a 2019 election, but the results came out in 2019. So there had been relative calm after the last national election in the DRC, um, especially 
in the East, which was really promising. And then things sort of started to fall apart in 2021. Um, a particular concern is the activity of the March 23 or M23 movement in North Kivu, this armed group, which is funded in part by the Rwandan government and was initially started by former members of the demobilized armed group, the National Congress for the Defense uh, of the People, or the CNDP, started a new rebellion against the Congolese government in 2012. The group briefly occupied Goma that same year, at sorry, that same year, and attacks by the group have ebbed and flowed ever since, although they've never taken Goma back, although there was a bit of concern that that might happen earlier this year. The resurgence of the M23 rebel group since 2021 uh, led several Congolese armed groups to form a coalition in opposition. These, uh, mili sorry, these militias are typically organized along ethnic lines and some were previously rivals. By August 2022, most had returned to their respective strongholds, but fighting continues. Renewed hostilities have also stoked ethnic tensions and increased fighting uh, within the region. Um, in addition to that, those conflicts are partially motivated uh, for control over agricultural and mineral resources. Between March and May of 2023, uh, Human Rights Watch documented eight unlawful killings and 14 cases of rape by M23 fighters. The link between Rwanda and the M23 has also led to a rise in hate speech and ethnically motivated attacks against Kenya Rwandan speaking communities in the eastern part in the eastern provinces. And uh, despite government and civil society efforts to stop such attacks. Um, conflict and violence against civilians uh, have increased in the eastern DRC since 2021, since March of 2022. 6.3 million people have been displaced in the Eastern DRC due to the activity of more than 120 armed groups. And by 2023, the World Food Program estimated that 25.8 million people, just under one third of the population of the DRC, were expected to face food insecurity. The humanitarian situation in the East was further complicated in May of 2022, when more than 450 people were killed in flooding in the Eastern DRC and in Western Rwanda, where 70% of the water infrastructure was also destroyed. MINUSCO has had limited success in maintaining peace and protecting civilians in the Eastern DRC with a Chapter 7 mandate, which authorizes the use of force in peace enforcement. The missions at times has been perceived by the local population as an active party to the conflict, as the mission has also struggled to offer meaningful protection to civilian populations from armed groups leading to distrust by the civilian population, which has also contributed to challenges in delivering humanitarian assistance, including during the Ebola crisis. And this has been further complicated by multiple scandals involving um, personnel from the mission, ranging from sexual assault and exploitation to killings, uh, concurrently, MINUSCO and his predecessor, Monarch, have played a leading role in maintaining what security does exist in the region, as the Congolese state has consistently failed to exercise its authority and maintain military control over the eastern part of the country since 
um, elections were first held in 2006 after large-scale international uh, conflict ended. Um, those are some really significant insights, I think, from uh, uh, with regards to Manusco. Um, it seems like maybe a different approach might be might be uh, needed um, or to be considered. Just uh, re relating to, to Canada's involvement, um, what can be said about Canada's role in the Manusco peacekeeping mission and have we had much of an impact at all? So Canada's current operation um, and contribution to MONUSCO is called Operation Crocodile uh, and it supports uh, MONUSCO in the DRC. Um, according to the Government of Canada's website, Canadian, Canadian Armed Forces members who partake in, or participate in the mission are based in Kinshasa and Goma. The CAF members are um, experienced in military operations, uh, liaison and training. They support MINUSCO um, in a number of ways, which include the protection of civilians, working with the local government and international officials to help the Congolese government improve justice and security, monitoring an arms ban, providing logistics support to assist in national and local elections. But wait, there's more. Uh, Canada's con uh, true contribution to MINUSCO is limited relative to the size of the overall, overall operation, which currently has 17,753 personnel. In May of 2023, Walter Dorn reported that there were 25 police and seven Canadian military per personnel who were part of the mission. However, it should also be noted that uh, the 32 Canadian personnel currently deployed to MINUSCO is the largest Canadian troop contribution to any UN peacekeeping mission at the moment. According to UN documents, Canada is making, as I said earlier, uh, a larger contribution to the mission through financing as the ninth largest financer uh, in 2020 and 2021. Uh, it was financing 2.734% of the mission, which is punching a little bit above its weight. This actually reflects broader trends in Canadian peacekeeping, although we don't meet our troop contribution targets. Um, we do make significant financial contributions to peacekeeping missions and to the UN overall. And so Canada does regain a bit of its reputation in that regard. Um, but for some additional perspective, uh, so the US is the largest donor funding 27.89% of the mission's budget and China's in second place financing 15.21% of the budget. So although Canada is the ninth largest budget, it's piece, or ninth largest donor, it's piece of the pie is relative, still relatively small. That's uh, that's helpful perspective for sure, just to get a sense of um, Canada's involvement there. Uh, I understand that you have done a lot of uh, work focusing on local engagement in peacebuilding processes, uh, specifically in the DRC. Um, could you speak a little bit about local engagement, uh, peacebuilding efforts in the DRC, and uh, uh, you know what kind of scope they they have there? Yeah, so um, there is a significant involvement of the local population um, in 
peace building efforts, both formal and informal in the Eastern DRC. So as I mentioned in my introduction, my doctoral research examined three contributions, uh, sorry, the contributions of three organizations to peace building efforts in the DRC. Um, so I'll talk briefly about that. And then I'll also talk about some more informal peace building efforts that I've also observed in the region, just to sort of give a sense of what that looks like. So um, in terms of the three organizations I looked at, one of the three organizations was a human rights and justice org oriented organization, uh, which uh, filled a number of tasks. It offered mediation services as a form of Pacific uh, conflict resolution so people didn't have to resort to violence over, for example, small land disputes. And they also helped um, victims of sexual and gender-based violence seek um, medical treatment, uh, legal, they offered them legal support and also helped them access um, sort of socioeconomic rehabilitation programs so that they could return to their lives after treatment. Um, and that organization also uh, is internationally known for its uh, human rights advocacy um, sort of products. So they produce a radio show and they also um, sometimes write articles and briefing notes, which they circulate to their supporters. Um, the second organization was more development focused and they were trying to address um, the root causes of conflict. Uh, by giving people livelihood alternatives to participating in the conflict. One of the reasons that people do decide to join armed groups, like I said earlier, according to the UN group of experts uh, on the DRC is uh, for the control of resources, which of course relates to your ability to feed your family in a context where a third of the population faces significant food insecurity. And so the theory there is that if people have training as a barber or a mason or a seamstress, uh, that they might be less likely to join um, armed groups. And so it works on that basis. Um, they also were doing peace education, um, which I thought was important. Um, and then the third organization also did peace um, education, they promoted inter-community dialogue at the community uh, and regional level. So they sometimes brought in people from Rwanda and Burundi who have also been party to the conflicts to try to build cross-border ties to reduce sort of ethnic and regional tensions. Um, that organization also had a really interesting liter literacy circle, um, which started as a group of women um, coming together to learn how to read and ended with women learning public speaking skills so that they could represent themselves in public forums um, and, and hold a little bit more power. Oh, that's awesome. The other really neat thing about all three of the organizations, which was that each organization worked with smaller community groups um, outside of the provincial capital of Bukavu. Um, and these groups, although they were, you know, sometimes financially supported by the organizations, would often persist with their work even after um, the organization had withdrawn. So in uh, Kalehe, which was actually unfortunately the territory that was affected by those terrible floods, we met a, um, a head of one of those community structures who 
have continued to work to demobilize members of armed groups, um, even after the formal relationship with the organization that they had worked with had ended. Um, and I thought that that was very inspiring and encouraging. Um, and then there was one more story that I really wanted to share in terms of uh, independent and informal peace building efforts. Um, on my second trip to the DRC, I spent some time in North Kivu and Masisi, uh, where I met a priest who was very committed to peace and justice and would walk for three days at a time into the Congolese jungle to meet with armed groups and to teach them about peace and justice and, and love. Um, and he was a priest, so probably also about God. <laughs> um, and um, he had quite a lot of success. He had successfully convinced a number of members of armed groups to put down their weapons in that um, territory in North Kivu is one of the ones most affected by armed violence. Uh, in the province, um, including one sort of leader of a rebel group um, and the demobilization of that particular official received international media attention. So that really speaks to the commitment of some members of the Congolese population to fostering a more peaceful and just society. It sounds like it's very inspiring to hear those those kinds of stories, and I can I can tell why um, you've taken such a keen interest in, in local peace building initiatives. Um, just to zoom out for one second to kind of get a sense of where local engagement in peace building fits into the uh, sort of broad scope, broad broad evolution of peace building. Um, was it a later development? Was it always considered, or how did it sort of emerge in that in that sense? Yeah, so in Oliver Richmond's genealogy of peace building, post-liberal peace building was sort of the fourth stage. We don't know what the fifth stage is. If only he would write another book. <laughs> That's not entirely true. He has evolved his theory a little bit, but you know, for, for this sake, yeah, we'll talk about post-liberal peace building as he presented it. So, um, you know, in the 1990s and early 2000s, we really had a focus on um, the establishment of strong states uh, with democracy and market economies by international actors in the face of conflict to try to um, sustain peace. But sometimes the institutions that were being implemented were not culturally relevant to the places that they were being introduced or there were other factors that didn't support uh, their sustainability. And so we saw an increase in the argument of critical scholars that there needed both, if we're looking at Severin Otoser in the case of the DRC, to be a more fundamental understanding of what the local causes of conflict were, as well as what the local constituency for peace was. Um, and so there started to be more calls for localization and local engagement. And this has been partially adopted by liberal peace builders but often when they talk about localization, they're talking about national ownership. But in a place like the DRC, where the national government has continued to struggle to exercise authority in the Eastern part of the country, it's also important to understand what 
peace building and peace mean at the provincial, municipal, and community level, um, and how people are sort of interacting with both peace and conflict in those spaces um, to try to understand how what foundation there is to start to build peace from. Um, and I think to some extent that's captured in the HIPPO's 2015 report, but opera operationalizing that approach is really complicated because it requires almost an anthropological knowledge of the conflict and the community resources for peace. Um, and like I said, there have also been challenges who, that have been noted by authors like Heidi Hudson um, in terms of how women are represented in those spaces. So if we look at contexts like the DRC or Afghanistan, which are highly patriarchal societies, um, we have a situation where um, an emphasis on local peace building might exclude women in some ways and in some spaces from those discussions. Um, and of course, women are often victimized through conflict. They participate actively in conflict. And so their concerns also need to be addressed through those processes. Um, and people with disabilities, um, as well as part of the LGBTQ2S plus communities have largely been excluded from those discussions altogether. Um, and so there's sort of a need to more meaningfully integrate them into those localized processes. And in some regard, international involvement can help to foster that. So there's sort of a delicate balance and um, even within the post-liberal peace building literature, the calls for localization have backed off a bit and generally recognized that um, there will be a hybrid approach in which international and local actors work together um, to bridge liberal peace building structures with traditional peace and conflict knowledge um, in order to achieve peace. But that tends to be a little bit messy and hard, still hard to implement by international actors who are on quick timelines with short and small budgets. That's well put. Um, thank you. Um, so drawing back on the focus, or putting the focus back on Canada, um, what has Canada done to assist local peace building initiatives in the DRC? Uh, and what should Canada uh, be doing to assist um, peace building efforts in the DRC? Yeah, so in terms of Canadian efforts to assist with uh, local peace building initiatives in the DRC, um, Canada sort of has two approaches to this. The first is that it will fund uh, projects run by Canadian NGOs in different parts of the world. You can explore them through the Government of Canada's uh, Project Finder app, which is a really useful tool for exploring um, different projects that are being undertaken by Canadian civil society organizations. Um, one example of that kind of project uh, was undertaken by my former employer, Kairos Canada, uh, which is called the Women of Courage Program, which was operating in the DRC in South Sudan and Palestine. Um, and in Colombia, which specifically sought to engage um, women peace builders in um, implementing 
UNSCR 1325 um, and helping them with access to justice for um, sexual and gender-based violence and to participate more fully in peace processes. Um, and so that's one way that Canada has supported uh, local peace building in the DRC and obviously uh, abroad as well. Um, and then Canada also has something called uh, the Local Initiative Fund, which is available through Canadian embassies to local organizations in the countries where those embassies are located that they can apply for. Um, and so those can be small scale peace building human rights development projects. Um, I don't know any organizations who've actually received that funding, but the government does actually distribute it. You can see it in as financial reporting. Um, so that might be something worth looking into. And um, there is one other way that the government can, and this would be one of my recommendations about what the government can maybe do better. There's one other avenue through which the government of Canada can support local peace builders, which is through Voices at Risk, which I mentioned at the beginning in relation to my own research. So Voices at Risk are Canada's guidelines on supporting human rights defenders. They apply to Canadian um, missions and embassies overseas and grant the government powers like um, offering awards to human rights defenders, to visiting them in prisons if they have been wrongfully imprisoned, attending their trials, um, and also publicly um, raising awareness about the work of human rights defenders. And based on access to information and privacy requests in 2021, uh, Global Affairs Canada headquarters recognized that local peace builders should be included amongst human rights defenders. So this is another avenue through which um, the government can support um, local peace builders. Um, my ATIP requests pertain specifically to the Philippines. To the Philippines, so I looked at Global Affairs Canada headquarters and then also the Embassy of Canada to the Philippines. And what I uncovered was that um, the embassy in the Philippines was really struggling at the time to fully implement voices at risk they hadn't been properly trained on the policy and they weren't necessarily comfortable with implementing the resources that were available to them um, and there was no evidence that it had specifically been used in the case of peace builders which would have been relevant there too so one avenue which the government could pursue supporting local peace builders specifically would be uh, to develop. So currently Voices at Risk has six annexes um, which relate to uh, women, the LGBTQ2S plus community, people with disabilities, journalists, and then two other groups. Um, and we could add an annex specifically on peace builders. Um, and then uh, Canadian embassies could receive more support uh, in the implementation of that particular policy. Um, and it would have the potential to address, for example, um, one of the organizations that I that participated in my doctoral field work in the DRC had been targeted by armed uh, attacks as well as arbitrary arrest by the state. 
um, in their peace building and human rights role, that's an example of where the Canadian embassy could step in and say, um, hey, um, you know, this human rights defender has been targeted and the Canadian embassy urges the government of the Democratic Republic of the Congo to release them. So that is my first recommendation in terms of what the government of Canada can do to support peace building. And then, but wait, there's more. Um, so I have some other ideas uh, here too. Uh, in terms of supporting local peace builders, uh, the government of Canada can renew its support for local peace building efforts like um, the Women of Courage project, which uh, was coming to the end of its most recent phase this year. Um, I think also Canada's ongoing engagement with the Women, Peace and Security agenda um, is another important way that Canada can influence um, both local peace builders and international peace operations. Um, the representation of women in peacekeeping missions is important. Um, but this approach can also help um, women who've been the victims of sexual and gender-based violence um, access justice. Um, so in this regard, the DRC is a country of focus for Canada's National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security. Um, and Canada says that it defends the rights of women and girls, advocates for women's empowerment, and fights to end impunity for the perpetration of sexual and gender-based violence. Um, a recent report by the International Group of Experts on the situation in the Democratic Republic of the Congo um, indicates that although there are ongoing calls and efforts to support access to justice for victims of sexual and gender-based violence and other forms of violence uh, which occurred during um, the Congolese conflict, that um, the infrastructure to actually support those efforts is limited. There aren't enough judges in some places, there aren't actual courthouses, there are limited capacity to hear trials uh, over the internet, like on Zoom in the case of the pandemic. Uh, and so this justice isn't being realized. Um, prisons are overcrowded. Um, legal rights are often thwarted. And so one meaningful way that Canada could support women who've been victims of sexual and gender-based violence and therefore contribute to peace would actually be to implement um, justice programs um, as it has done in other countries that would support the Congolese judiciary and producing more of this infrastructure in order to specifically hear cases related to sexual and gender-based violence or conflict-related violence more broadly. Um, I also, so those are sort of my comments specific to local peace and peace building. And then there's a couple more obvious uh, responses to the bigger picture here. So uh, Canada could certainly increase troop and equipment contributions to MINUSCO and MONUC um, as long as the mission continues. Um, and I also wanted to take a moment to emphasize um, the need for political leadership. Um, and diplomacy in de-escalating 
international tensions between Rwanda and the DRC and to a lesser extent Uganda and the DRC. You may know from media reports that um, Congolese rebels operating from North Kivu recently burnt down a school and killed and kidnapped um, several students from a Canadian-built school um, on the Congolese border in Uganda. Um, and so there's a need for some preventative diplomacy both between um, Uganda and the DRC and Rwanda and the DRC. And Canada is uniquely positioned to offer leadership on that preventative diplomacy because the DRC is a member of the Francophonie and Uganda and Rwanda are both um, members of the British Commonwealth and Canada is a member of both. Um, and there are not very many countries who are a member of both. And Canada has a long history of using uh, its membership in international organizations uh, to conduct such diplomacy. And so that would be another avenue on a larger scale to demonstrate leadership um, in relation to um in relation to peacekeeping in the area um in addition there's just one more thing here um i always like to plug um the need for canada to increase its international assistance uh, and its official development assistance so if it increased its uh international assistance envelope um it could make a further contribution uh, both to the peacekeeping mission, but also to uh, more locally led initiatives around the world. That's great. That's uh, a, a lot of insights and um, um, there's a lot of recommendations that uh, the government of Canada should um, definitely consider. Um, now taking just to end uh, to sort of scope out again, um, Finally, as global conflicts are becoming increasingly complex, um, having nations remain genuinely committed to multilateral peacebuilding initiatives would be important. Globally, um, what do you think Canada's role should be um, in, in peacebuilding initiatives moving forward? Do you think we should be take a, a leadership role, or, or what do you think? Um, I think that Canada should continue to play to its existing strengths. So one of those areas at the moment is in relation to the Women, Peace and Security agenda. Um, so I think Canada can continue to play a leadership role in that regard. Historically, Canada has preferred to, instead of acting as an independent peace broker, as we've seen sometimes in the United States and recently, with China trying to mediate the conflict in Ukraine and Russia. Um, Canada prefers to work through multilateral um, organizations like the UN um, to foster peace. And so I think by reinvigorating its engagement with multilateral institutions and with uh, organizations like the Francophonie and uh, the Commonwealth, um, Canada can best serve the interests of peace. Um, and I also think um, that there is an opportunity for Canada to reinvigorate its contribution to local peace building efforts, particularly through 
uh, the local initiatives fund and also through uh, the full implementation of Voices at Risk. That's great. Um, what's, uh, is there a specific country or region do you think that Canada should be paying more attention to um, going, going forward? Obviously the DRC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. Yeah, it definitely sounds like there is a, a lot of attention needed uh, there. So um, that, that's a well-taken recommendation. Yeah, and one of the challenges with the Democratic Republic of the Congo is because the conflict um, is now approaching its third decade. Um, there has been donor fatigue. There has been push for Monusco to withdraw from the country altogether. It has started to withdraw from some areas of the DRC. Um, but the humanitarian consequences of a fast withdrawal, especially in the face of rebel activity on the part of M23, uh, is very high. Um, and so there is an ongoing need there. Canada does have um, unique avenues for negotiating, as I've already said, through the Francophonie and through the Commonwealth. And it has experience in other Sub-Saharan African contexts that could help it to lead in terms of military contributions um and of course we have many congolese um canadians who um can contribute knowledge to the government about how to best use its resources so um i do think that yeah it it should be on canada's radar and continue to be one of canada's countries of focus for sure for sure um, just to end, uh, one more question. Um, so it's kind of a, a broad question and maybe a little bit too big for, for the last question, but um, just like a, maybe a quick thought on what do you think will be some of the challenges to uh, helping create lasting peace in, in conflict regions or even may, maybe more specifically in the DRC? Yeah, so I mean, I think overall for any country or country operating bilaterally or um, any international organization operating multilaterally is if you're seriously committed to long-term term sustainable locally owned peace, um, it's to actually have the opportunity and time to gather locally specific conflict knowledge and peace building knowledge um, and weighing that in terms of donor and voter desires for quick results, um, low budgets and fast turnarounds is a, a major challenge. I think um, I think the United Nations has also lost a fair amount of its power and authority in the world. Um, and so that's making UN peacekeeping missions more challenging. There have been significant efforts to reform uh, the protection of civilians, um, but in operational context, including in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, 
troops tend to be under-resourced and are not necessarily trained in a way that will um, correspond well to local protection efforts and so there are sometimes conflicts there um, and uh, making sort of last minute like on on the ball decisions so fast decisions in the face of armed violence can be really challenging for the protection of civilians so that makes it yeah even more challenging I'm saying the word challenge is a lot sorry um, uh, in addition you know so I think that just means that we need to look for more avenues uh, through which to contribute to peace building. So yes, we've historically looked at multilateral organizations, particularly the UN, sometimes through NATO, sometimes through the Francophone League, but um, you know, we could look into innovative ways, for example, of supporting peace processes that are directed by the African Union uh, or the ASEAN. Um, in Asia um, to promote regionally-led initiatives that might be more culturally and geographically centered around the needs of the people in the regions where they're seeking to build peace. Um, and of course, um, there's always a need to link and peace building to access to justice, which includes um, socioeconomic stability um, and in the context of global pandemics, access to healthcare. Um, so no small order <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, nations looking to make a big splash in terms of our, our peace operations. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I, I do have to say, um, uh, I, I, I took Dr. Van Houten's um, peace building and reconstruction class, and it was an amazing class and um, really well taught and so much so much to learn in, in this field. Um, so I really enjoyed this, this conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Van Houten. Uh, we appreciate you sharing your insights and expertise on this very important topic. Um, are there any final words or sentiments that you'd like to leave us with? Uh, I just wanted to thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, I also always profoundly appreciate the opportunity to talk about the situation in the DRC and raise the raise awareness about the important peace-building work that local populations are doing there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I definitely appreciate the, the stories and those insights there. Uh, uh, quite inspiring and powerful and important for people to, to know about them. Dr. Kirsten Van Houten is a postdoctoral fellow in human rights at the University of Winnipeg and an adjunct research professor at NIPSIA. Thank you for tuning in with us today and we hope you join us next time on Policy Talks.